Welcome to another episode of Founder Fundamentals. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Shum and Ahmed Kumar, the co-founders of Thread Genius. Thread Genius was an AI-powered image recognition platform that was acquired by Sotheby's in January of 2018. Andrew and uh, Ahmad, thanks for joining. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for having us. So why don't we get started with your respective backgrounds so our listeners can understand you better as individuals? Andrew? Uh, yeah, so I studied computer science and physics at MIT. Okay. Um, was always kind of like doing undergraduate research at like uh, physics labs. Okay. Um, I think the... What topics were you researching? Mostly like biophysics topics. Okay. I think the last project I remember doing is uh, some sort of like Monte Carlo simulation, like uh, model this sort of like protein type within that's like found in the brain. Yeah. And then after after college, I went kind of deep into just like building apps joined Spotify as a JavaScript developer. Uh, you know, we were kind of working more on sort of like, how do we, how do we like kind of allow users to discover music through social interactions? Met this guy, Ahmed, um, a couple years in. Uh, we kind of bonded over like a shared interest in like physics and machine learning. Okay. And that was kind of a, the rest of the history. So <laughs> how did you shift from researching proteins to app development at Spotify? Those worlds seem very yeah. distant at a very surface level. So, so how did that shift occur for you? Yeah. Sort of like the, the common thread, I think, is like this sort of in, in both fields, you're sort of like modeling like reality okay. in some way. And I always kind of found it really beautiful that if you can like sort of model something that's very physical and, and found in reality uh, uh, well enough, you can sort of like extrapolate and, and make uh, predictions. Um, that's sort of how I guess I like, found myself taking an interest in, in machine learning. Ahmed? Yeah, I started off studying mathematics and physics at University of Chicago. And I also was doing quite a bit of research there. What were you researching? Yeah, I started off with uh, bioinformatics. This was before college. And then in college, I studied a bit of neuroscience. And that is what, uh, theoretical neuroscience. And that's what exposed me to machine learning. Okay. But this was kind of the precursor to machine. This was about two years before uh, the key breakthrough happened within the machine learning world that allowed it to gain a global prominence. So there was theoretical neuroscience, also research in physics. So I, I had an internship at CERN, where eventually the Higgs boson discovery was was announced, and as well as uh, machine learning uh, research as well. So I guess same question for you: How do you go from theoretical neuroscience to engineering at Spotify? Yeah, it was it was unintentional. The long-term goal for me in college was to become a math or physics professor, uh, so I failed quite a bit, uh, very much off target. Maybe as an adjunct at some point. At some point. Okay. Uh, it's definitely on the, on the radar. But the, the transition was uh, a, bit, a bit gradual. I, yeah, I found machine learning fascinating for the same reasons. So, yeah, I mean, physics kind of studies reality in, in a very systematic way. But when I first started learning about certain techniques within machine learning, they were a bit more general. You could throw different kinds of data sets at it, and, and it usually finds some amount of structure if, there, if there's structure there. Okay. And that just blew my mind. So I was thinking about kind of all of the ways that, that you can understand uh, or discover patterns that previously were not as easily accessible, or the methods that we had didn't really allow their accessibility. How did I end up at Spotify? It's kind of an interesting journey because uh, I was off to grad school um, for machine learning, and I deferred uh, after graduating. I was kind of burnt out from from undergrad, 
And uh, that summer, I was presenting at a conference where Spotify was also recruiting, and they made a pretty compelling um, case to why not just spend my one year one year deferral uh, at Spotify to join kind of the the founding uh, machine learning team, which was which I think at that point was founded right about around that time. So I said, why not? It's like a good use of a year. I can learn stuff. Um, and I never really went back. So both of you met at Spotify, correct? Yeah. yeah. And I guess I'll go into the uh, ML part a little bit later on to understand what is the hype around ML. But what I do want to understand is from your respective undergrad careers, what transferable skill sets had you, I guess, gained in the sciences world that you guys were later that you guys were later able to apply to, you know, the respective machine learning path that you had done, or even app development? So, I guess again, at a surface level, and just to inform the listeners a little bit more, your work of research in the sciences, what skill sets were you really using that you could cross over so easily and go into the engineering side, or did you have to pick up a new skill set? Yeah, I think I think the the key skill set is to be able to take a problem and break it down into more tractable, more approachable problems. You know, ask, ask the right questions. Ask questions that can give you actionable insights. That is, I think that's, that's like a very key skill set okay. that, that ends up being really useful, not just in engineering, but pretty much, you know, any aspect of, of life. So it was the more qualitative portion that you had really transferred over as opposed to the quant portion of your skill set? In the day-to-day, the, the, the quantitative portion is certainly useful. I mean, our, our work is technical at the end of the day. Correct. So, so it does carry over uh, quite a bit. But I think there are broader-reaching ways in which the approach to problems that is part of research ends up being quite useful in, in tackling many other problems that are not even research-related. It, it helps you tackle problems that are like, you know, that users might have or consumers might have. Okay. Andrew? Yeah, I'd say for me, it's it was definitely more of the the qualitative uh, skills um, rather than like hard science or hard math. It, I think you know when you're let's just like focus on you know developing software. The worst thing you could do is sort of just like attack the problem and keep building and building and not releasing anything. I think a skill I learned like in college, given a problem, how do we break it down to like okay, what is the first thing we can release the most like the cheapest thing we can release that actually has some sort of value and then can we like layer on after like that is all to say that i think in college i learned how to like hack things together okay. very quickly and like prove something um before we actually like, invest more time and money into building something even further um so yeah so you guys had started off on the sciences side more i guess a deep technology at this point and the two worlds are obviously linked, but what I want to understand is, did you always have a very strong interest in technology since childhood? Did that appear in your college life? Where did that come about? Yeah, I think for me, like, um, I've always, like, generally, like, making things. Okay. Um, so you're a builder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think computer science, it was, like, uh, I could, like, formulate and build everything all by myself on, like, a laptop, right? And yeah. that's like, the only resource I needed, and that was it was fun doing that. I tried my hand doing some mechanical engineering and some like soldering like wires together and never really worked out because I don't think I was like dexterous enough so yeah for me I've always had kind of a curiosity about about the world how does it work okay uh, so it's more of like a research uh, mindset that I bring to things but very early on um, I realized that computation programming uh, is one of the most useful tools in in tackling uh, questions that you might have research questions that you might have so I kind of started to develop those skills just through work that I was doing 
I ended up in technology almost by accident. Like okay. academia or research was kind at of the conference. The, 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 yeah, exactly. Okay. That was the intended uh, goal. But what I do in my day to day, even today, it's, it's still very much research oriented. It's trying to understand um, either whether it's content in the case of Spotify or Thread Genius. No. Or some of the work that we're we're doing at, at Sotheby's as well. It's really about like understanding a domain using computation, um, where a lot of the value is is created. So you eventually end up at Spotify. Tell me about what you guys were doing there, and you know how this friendship really started about at Spotify. I think for the first year, I was working uh, mostly on sort of like front end web uh, features. Okay. Uh, so for instance, uh, if you remember like the Spotify messaging, where you can like send your friends some music, and it yeah. all goes in a playlist. Um, I worked on that. Um, then I eventually got really interested in data-related problems. So I realized that I think sort of all the features that I wanted to do for these like hackathons really uh, required knowing how to kind of like manipulate data and all that good stuff. And then I think that's when I started actually talking to Ahmed. Um, and sort of, I think one of the first questions I asked him was like, do you know where this data set is? So did you guys <laughs> just sit next to each other at Spotify? No, we, we didn't actually. Okay. No, I think... I think the only reason why we ever actually like uh, interacted is because like we were really young, like relative to kind of the average age of the Spotify employees at okay. the time. And when you're really young, you're like fresh out of college, like there's like nothing to do, so you just kind of stay yeah. really late. <laughs> and I think like uh, yeah, like he and I were the only ones who actually like stayed past like 10 p.m. sometimes. Okay, <laughs> just like we just bump into each other and, and chat. Yeah, Ahmed, is this how you remember the story? <laughs> Uh, we encountered each other quite a bit okay. late, <laughs> late at Spotify when the whole building was empty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it was like one of these sessions we had sort of like one of these ideas kind of floated by that like, you know, uh, we should be doing some sort of project involving, you know, AI and understanding style and aesthetic. And that's sort of how like the genius. But this was in the context of the work that you were doing at Spotify. So you weren't necessarily out on a mission to build a business. No, no. I think that was mistake number one. We wanted, we didn't want to build a business. We wanted to build something like really cool. Yeah. I think like around the time we were talking about these ideas or similar ideas, Discover Weekly had come out and it kind Which of... Which we have Ahmed to thank for. Yes. So fun right. fact, if you don't know this, Ahmed is actually the sole patent author of the Discover uh, Weekly function on Spotify. So yeah, I mean, Ahmed would love to hear a little bit more about that. But yeah, Andrew, you were saying? Yeah, I think around that time, like Discover Weekly um, was... It kind of like blew every like machine learning like feature out of the water it was like this most like, successful feature that was just driven purely by machine learning okay i think something like 10 percent of streams just comes from this sort of algorithmic playlist and i think i personally found it so fascinating because like and we'll get into this later i, I the thing i found most fascinating was actually how the, the algorithm was developed it was essentially like a crowdsourced way of capturing humanity's like understanding of musical taste in a way we can actually like quantify um, things like taste and style and sort of just like math, right? And, okay. and once you're able to do that, you can, again, like make these predictions where you, you, where you, you can like just recommend more content. And it, it was way more powerful than any of like the, the human curated like playlists that, that we, we had um, known about. Okay. Um, so I found that so fascinating. I think that was what kind of um, drove us to sort of uh, explore different areas where this kind of like sort of ethos uh, can be applied. So like e-commerce was one that really stuck out to us where I think there was a lot of sort of discrepancy in that field. There was just not not a lot of thinking in this way of like kind of how do we analyze content and and uh, be able to uh, represent um, things that were innately very visual and style driven and then being able to kind of t- you know, leverage that to to recommend content while you're searching and discovering for things. Yeah. Okay. 
Ahmed, yeah. So we have to thank you for the Discover Weekly function on Spotify. So do tell us a little bit more about that and how that came about. So the algorithm is is the part that I have the patent for. When I joined the team, uh, there were about 10 other machine learning engineers okay. uh, within our very nascent team. And we had a pretty, quite amazing work environment. We would uh, do research, like develop uh, algorithms to be able to power various personalization or, or recommendation features, whether it's like radio or back then there was a discover page. And every week or two, we would launch these. And before launch, we would kind of bet on which algorithms we think would, would, would win. So it was like a pretty nice work environment. The story behind the specific idea of, of, of the algorithm that came to Power Discover Weekly was that the models that we were relying on, uh, there were dozens of them. Okay. And each model relied on a different uh, set of data. So one model would rely on, uh, pl- uh, for example, playlist data. Another model would rely on uh, your listening history. Um, another would rely on radio skips, for example. And I'd always wanted to kind of build a single model that can leverage information from all of these different uh, sources okay. in a single model. So so for the most part of the first year, it was just like an idea ruminating in my mind, like how how can, can we architect an algorithm that can kind of combine many of these sources? And then it took about two months of just, just um, trying out various configurations to arrive at a model that, that succeeded and kind of beat the performance of all of the other individual models that that we had. So I was pretty satisfied with it. The story almost ended there, but there was another engineer in our team. And this is this is kind of where it gets interesting because, you know, algorithm alone uh, is, is not sufficient. If it finds the right product, that's where the magic happens. So there was there was another engineer in our in our team who um, decided to take this algorithm and generate playlists for for uh, people within our team, and I guess for employees within New York, and just send it out and see what they think. And people really liked it, so we kind of sent it out to the whole company, and we, we had quite incredible feedback uh, along the lines of, you know, it's 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 amazing that this algorithm understands me uh, better than I understand my own music taste. So and th- that was kind of the start of it. But it took this shift in thinking, because at that point, the recommendation products that Spotify had strictly were either radio or um, uh, discover page. And it took this like bit of genius to uh, wrap up the recommendations in a more consumable format. Okay. And that's that's really what, a, what, what the playlist is. It leads to a lean back experience that no other feature does. The product itself almost was born out of an accident. It was sort of just like... I remember. Yeah, let, let's the, test out. Yeah, was, how good was, the model is. It was a format yeah. to test the algorithm. Yeah, and then I think we all just realized, like, wait, why don't we just like keep this playlist in my like playlist bar because it's so good, and I actually want to like have it updated, and that's when it became a product. In terms of actually deconstructing the product right now, so the model that you refer to is the corpus of data that you guys were using to actually test the model out. That was all Spotify generated in terms of all user activity that was going on. So, yeah, I mean, any model that, that we worked on relies mostly on, on internal data. The winning model, the model that, that ultimately led to powering Discover Weekly, Andrew touched upon it a bit on, on how, uh, how it operates. Um, if I were to yeah, describe it non-technically, I would say this is a model that reverse engineers human creativity that goes into generating playlists. Okay. 
because it's trained on that. It has access to billions of user-generated playlists, and it seeks to find patterns. How are different songs um, arranged over over billions and billions of playlists? And ultimately, you're able to build. You can think of it as a map of how different songs are related to each other, how different artists and albums are related to each other. And the the piece that's that's left within this map is where do users lie? So if you lie, if you as as a Spotify user lie in one one area of this map, we would recommend to you the songs that are that are near you that okay. that's, that surround you. So I guess in terms of just at a high level the technical components. So you guys had mentioned that there were multiple variables that were going into this actual model. And then you're trying to find out where someone lays on a map. So just at a very high level, you know, what type of logic was going into this? I mean, was it a nearest neighbor approach? What type of approach was it? So there is an algorithm that's most similar to this. It's called uh, word to vec So it comes from linguistics, uh, from natural language processing, uh, where there's uh, a hypothesis that, that states uh, if you read a corpus of text, words that are close together are, are close together in meaning as well. Okay. So... If if you read billions and billions of, of lines of text, it does end up panning out. So okay. if you read a sentence like, oh, the star is shining brightly, yeah. you know, star shining brightly, these are these are words that do indeed carry somewhat similar meaning. So at its core, the inspiration comes from natural language processing. And ultimately what we've done is uh, taken this insight and, and applied it to, to music where you can think of a playlist as... Uh, a string of, of songs or words where if they occur in the same playlist, they are related. So Andrew and Ahmed, obviously you both know there's a lot of hype around machine learning these days, big data, AI, and on the topic of models and machine learning, deconstruct all this hype for us and give us the facts on this. You know, what is what, I guess, separated out for us? Let's start with big data. Let's okay. let's go in chronological order. Okay. <laughs> so I think I think big data is simply an artifact of the internet age. You know, since the early 2000s, more and more people have access to internet. Uh, and that data ends up sitting somewhere, usually in, in data centers owned by institutions, private institutions. And so, yeah, the rise or the prevalence of the internet really is, is what leads to big data uh, even being a concept. When you have a lot of data, you know, it's, it's a goldmine. Uh, if you have proper tooling, if you have pro- proper techniques to analyze that data, you can go quite far. That's where uh, techniques and tools that analyze data kind of come in. Uh, machine learning is a discipline uh, within statistics that has the aim of understanding usually usually unstructured data. Within machine learning, there, there are a whole host of techniques that one can employ uh, to understand data depending on what what kind of data it is uh, so you will to understand text you will use one kind of machine learning model to understand images you'll use a different kind of machine learning model um, but at the end of the day it's it really is just advanced s- statistics you can think of it that way that's what machine learning is okay so Andrew the difference between machine learning and AI so I hear a lot of people using it interchangeably and it's usually within the context a lot of people is like with sci-fi and robots and everyone taking over the world. But yes, uh, do tell us the difference between AI and machine learning. Yeah, to be honest, I think like like Mama said, like machine learning is just a set of techniques. There was like that meme a while back of like 2009 versus yeah. 2019. Like 2009, it was statistics. And 2019, it's machine learning. Yeah. Like they're indeed the same thing. It's like it's just like, you know, the size of your data sets. 
to be honest, I'm not really sure what AI is. Okay. <laughs> like it's just a sort of like a kind of uh, nebulous term to describe all these different, I guess, techniques. I, I mean, I think like AI was a thing way back then in like sort of the 60s where yeah. we like did very – uh, kind of, we use very primitive, rudimentary techniques to sort of simulate intelligence. Okay. But I don't know. Do you have a better answer? Oh no, you you kind of <laughs> nailed it on the head. Like AI is is always this like morphing general term. It's it's this like morphing. It has a morphing definition depending on whatever the state of the art is at any given time. Whoever's using it, right? So so AI back in the eighties referred to. Uh, the set of techniques that were pop- popular back then, these were like rule-based techniques. Today, you know, advanced statistics with like big data has has proven to be quite useful. And so this term has been associated uh, with that. But I, there is, there has been for a very long time a desire within the academic community as well as I guess just humans in general to build a system that has what's what's like specifically referred to as artificial general intelligence. Okay. So remember I mentioned that current machine learning techniques are specialized to specific problems. Correct. If you're analyzing text versus images, you're using totally different approaches. Correct. AGI is kind of this desire to endow human-level in- intelligence uh, into machines for understanding data or reality. I was at a I was at like an AI slash art meetup the other day, and this AI artist was asked like a very similar question. Like, what's the difference between AI and ML? And he goes like, well, it really depends on whether you're trying to sell something or not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. So backtracking a little bit, Andrew, you know, you're in the building at Spotify past 10 p.m. It's only you two. You guys are exchanging models and data, trying to figure out what to do with your time in the evening. So remind us a little bit, where did the Thread Genius come from? What was the inception of this business? I think it's literally like one of us was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I like took a picture of your shoe and found that shoe online and all similar shoes. And you know what would be more awesome is like if we took a picture of that shoe and just found all types of lifestyle images of people wearing that. So you can understand like how you can pair that shoe with a bag or camouflage or jeans or whatever. Um, that was kind of like the start of a product idea. Um, I think the... The company and what we did kind of evolved a lot um, since that sort of first conversation of like the possibility of like, what if we trained a model to do this? And in terms of following a process to build a business, you know, as you guys are probably well aware, so you guys went through the Techstars cohort, and I don't know whether they touched upon this or not, but I guess just the common playbook of going out, speaking with your customers, testing appetite or whatnot, was there a specific process that you guys followed? I think the first process we follow was just like, okay, let's just build this thing, we'll okay. release it, and then we'll just test it out. Okay. Um, you know, it turns out the product was cool. Like basically it worked the way I just described it. Like you just take a picture of something and then you get re- recommendations. I think the hard part was just like how do you turn that into something that generates money? Yeah. Uh, or actually before that, like how do you turn that into something that people will use all the time? And I think kind of going through Techstars, uh, it kind of forced us to think more in, in terms of turning this idea into a business rather than like just turning into some – uh, useful feature. What was that process of going through Techstars? You know, when did you, I guess, apply to it? When did you know that you wanted to get into an accelerator? What was that process like? Winter of 2017. We knew that we had something. You know, we at that, I think at around that time we had pivoted to doing B2B SaaS. Okay. Uh, we figured that uh, it was actually much easier to kind of just like sell uh, what we had built through an API, and we had uh, a couple like pilots going on. Um, but to sort of like take it to the next level, I think we, we knew that we needed one guidance and two, some capital. 
that's when we started applying to different accelerators. And when you guys first started Thread Genius, I guess, what was your vision for it long term? You know, 10x thinking, where did you think this thing was going to go? Yeah, I think, I mean, as, as Andrew mentioned, in the beginning, it was really just like, let's, this is something that's fascinating okay. for us. Let's, let's build it out. Let's, let's see it out the door. Um, in retrospect, that's not the approach I would recommend to others. <laughs> okay. I would say start with the problem first. Correct. And, and that's, this is the kind of thinking that was, uh, you know, endowed to us within Techstars. So the vision originally when you guys started Thread Genius was just for image recommendation. It was, I guess, finding recommended products or similar products. It was nothing beyond that at that point. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And in terms of the experience of going through Techstars, I guess, what were some of the value drivers in there for you? Andrew, you had briefly mentioned upon, you know, this this kind of logic of approaching approaching it not as just a product, but approaching it as a business. What were the biggest value drivers of the accelerator for you? Yeah, so a few things. One is, uh, given that we were technical founders, getting boot camp okay. uh, pretty much um, for how to approach approach this approach our business. Okay. The other, I guess, right off the bat would be credibility, you know, given that we're a pretty small team, one one year young, um, and we had just switched our business model to SaaS. Um, having, you know, Techstars badge really does add to credibility, uh, not just for potential clients, but also for when you're recruiting for engineers or, or salespeople. That was also quite, quite useful. Um, in addition, of course, to, to uh, initial capital infusion as well. Um, but the process itself um, of how, yeah, how, how do you go from a product to a business, that's pretty much what we spent the, the 12 weeks of the program doing. Um, it was kind of interesting because uh, we started the program um, with uh, the main aim of Thread Genius to, to provide an, an API uh, platform where, where um, customers could build recommend, recommender systems relying on our, our platform. But within the program, we, based on, you know, uh, feedback that we received, we really had to think about, all right, uh, are we simply going to be a platform? Uh, there were challenges with being a platform. One of the main challenges was that the kind of platform that we were uh, didn't really lend to scale because, uh, you know, one retailer might have totally different needs than another. Correct. And so we would it, it would end up being a services business. Yeah. The other challenge was... You know, if if we have a client who, perhaps a retailer who's using our, our platform, if they're able to build a sustainable product out of that, why not us build that ourselves? So we did explore uh, quite a bit of product ideas that that we could establish ourselves. But yeah, throughout this exploration, at the end of it, at the end of the twelve weeks, we pretty much landed back where we started, and we we, yeah. we settled down on on being a API business. So you touched upon the challenges that you guys had faced when starting the business. You know, obviously, you gain all this great knowledge and experience from the Techstars experience. And in Jan of 18, you do eventually decide to sell the business to Sotheby's. Right before you decided to sell, how far had you actually scaled the business? And what were the operations of the business looking like at that point? Yeah, at that point, um, there were about, I think, six or seven of us working, some full-time, some part-time. We had just launched our API publicly on Product Hunt. We were getting a few pilots here and there like every single week. And basically, yeah, I think we had kind of reached this inflection point where, you know, we kind of took a step back and, uh, you know, look at the market forces. And there were there were a couple market forces that we, we didn't predict, like when we kind of started, when we left Spotify and just embarked on, on this journey, one of which is like, you know, how much infrastructure 
AI infrastructure that sort of all these incumbents, these cloud platform incumbents, um, had built during a time that we had been building our company, um, and it was it felt uh, you know a little scary. Like so, for instance, like Google and Amazon, they had started you know, you know they, they already had like an image recognition Correct. platform, and none of them were really kind of domain specific, okay. right? And that was sort of the only kind of competitive edge that we saw we had. But it was only a matter of a t- of time before I think they kind of inched into that space. Um, and so in order to take it to the level where we ne- uh, needed to be, as in get all the customers and sort of, you know, f- form this sort of moat okay. um, that you know, protects us from all these uh, incumbents, um, that would have required like a lot of, uh, we believe, like capital and also kind of switching focus to more just being like a maniacal salesman versus like building like cool technologies. Oh. And I think that was the kind of like a uh, deciding factor. It was just like, you know, are we really passionate about or just like, Taking this thing, and just selling it really, really hard to to retailers, um, because of course, like the retail, like selling to like you know the retailers that were on our list, like the Nordstroms and Kohl's, like yeah. to close a deal, like it, it can drag on, right? Correct. Like, and it can really tire tire you out. And I think we we realized that like if you go back to sort of the first day, the day this idea was conceived, like the coolest part about this was just sort of building two cool technologies. Um, I think that's what sort of drove us to decide to sell, because I think there was the um, the kind of opportunity on the other side was like, you know, hey, you, you get, you know, all this capital and resources to just continue, like, building cool stuff. Okay. Right? Do, do you remember the exact moment that you knew to yourself, you know, I want to sell this thing at this point? Is that still crystal clear in your head? It was kind of a gradual process, in part because once we launched our flagship product, the, the API, we started to get requests from some of our test users for a closer partnership. And then there were also these these thoughts that Andrew mentioned that were constantly there. These considerations about, well, one point, one additional point I would add is when we started Thread Genius, there were very few, just a handful of players in the visual content understanding for fashion space. And by the time that, you know, we had launched our flagship API, there were about 50 or so. So it was kind of a gradual realization that we should definitely explore uh, our options. And in terms of actually founding and running a business, so I guess as first-time entrepreneurs, when you look back upon that experience, what were some of the challenges that you faced respectively as entrepreneurs of actually running the business itself? I think both of us are like builders. We have this builder mindset. Okay. And so it's hard to just like pull us away from building something and be like, hey, stop. I think it's enough. <laughs> let's like let's just try to uh, ask our users, like, is this enough? Like. I'm, I'm assuming you also had to put on the HR hat at some point yeah. when you guys were actually doing the initial hiring. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we had to put on every hat. Every hat. <laughs> yeah. Which hat did you enjoy the most? Which one was new to you from the work that you had done previously? I would say the the one that was least enjoyable, I guess you would agree, is the fundraising yeah. part. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess any any anyone who's in that situation would agree. Yeah. The part that I found most enjoyable was navigating through challenge after challenge. Every week brings a new, every week is different. And yeah, that part was, it's rough, but it's, I do appreciate that, that being in that situation. And looking back upon the work that you guys had done with Thread Genius, what are some things that you would have done differently in retrospect in terms of building the business itself? And this is the advice I give like founders nowadays, which is like, you should just, before you quit your job, like try to prove it out in some way. Yeah. Like, if it's a SaaS business, try to prove, like try to actually get a customer yeah. doing a pilot, right? If it's like a, a B2C, right? Try to get some users, like uh, rather than sort of just leave your job and try to build something like really cool. 
I think that was, like I said, that was like kind of mistake number one for us. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, Andrew, because contrary to what we see in a lot of popular media, especially when it's in the tech space, it's always, you know, there's these fanatical stories of people that just want to quit college, want to quit their jobs and create the next Facebook or whatever it is. But I've also heard this side of the sound advice, which is, you know, you can kind of have that bridge between your full time or whatever you're doing respectively and build out the business slowly as opposed to just calling it quits one day and saying, hey, I'm going to go build my business. Well, it makes for a better story, which is why you hear it yeah. more often. I think you don't yeah. hear the thousand other yeah. stories. Yeah. Ahmed, what do you think you would have done differently in retrospect? Yeah, precisely the same. Uh, be more customer and product focused, as as we've kind of touched upon. We were focused more on technology, developing our, our, our technology first, uh, seeking to find a viable business model. And eventually, we the sale of our company led to that. We found a business that can use the tech, but... Yeah, I would have if I were to do it again, I would I would start with with solving a business problem. And this is I think this is kind of inherent to uh machine learning companies. Uh, I remember my my boss from Spotify mentioning exactly this point that machine learning on its own carries no value. It's really when it's 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 tied to some business that it can it can accelerate uh, or enhance uh, or make efficient a, a business, but on its own it's it, it doesn't carry. And I I also value. argue that it it's hard to sustainably carry value because it's sort of, you know, all the technologies you build with machine learning are dependent on, as we mentioned before, like the data, right? And that's very intrinsic to the business problem you're trying to solve. And sort of like the best machine learning that you see nowadays, like coming from Facebook and Google, like that came like 10 years, you know, after they started the company and had already like a sustainable way to just continue to generate more and more data. So that like the algorithms just keep getting better and better, right? It's hard to sort of start a company in machine learning to just sell machine learning. That's sort of something that we learned the hard way. So in terms of the acquisition in January of 2018, an outcome that a lot of entrepreneurs actually look forward to, which is selling their business at some point. So the interesting thing about this acquisition, uh, even as it was outlined in a TechCrunch article, is that Sotheby's isn't traditionally seen as a technology-savvy company. It's known for art auctioning. But this acquisition proved that a focus on data was there somewhere and is in the corporate strategy for the company. So it's been a year since the acquisition itself. So how has that integration process been over the past year, and what does that roadmap look like going forward? Sotheby's was was that business that that this technology was was looking for. What we found when we... Uh, arrived at the company was the technical infrastructure uh, was not comparable to, of course, not comparable to what you would find at a place like Spotify. Uh, but what was there was a solid business model that had been functioning for over 200 years, over Correct. 275 years. Um, and there was a lot of data as well. Uh, and there was a lot of will within the company to leverage technologies uh, to really make uh, business operations uh, efficient and improve them, um, and that's yeah, that's really what we've been what we've been uh, working on. And in terms of the actual integration process itself, so a lot of as you guys probably are well aware, a lot of M and A activity usually ends up failing for cultural reasons itself. You know, the team doesn't get along somehow. You know, when the founders, if it's part of the acquisition. The founders realize that the vision is actually skewed from what they were promised at the time of the acquisition itself. So I guess from a cultural perspective, how has that acquisition been for you in terms of Sotheby's giving you open arms and welcoming you? Yeah, when when we were uh, in the phase of 
selling Thread Genius, we did have offers on the table from other tech companies, and okay. we did see it as a risk to accept an offer from a, a, a company that's not tech oriented. Uh, but we did get assurances from leadership that the, the initiative that we would be working on is is a top priority, and I think that that was probably the the, the one thing that was most responsible for the kind of success that we've seen uh, so far with 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 our team. Uh, that I mean, we, and we've been there for over a year now, just buy in from executives. Okay. And in terms of the actual Thread Genius model itself and the platform that you guys have developed, where does that stand today to the extent that you can disclose? I guess the, the other thing that uh, made joining uh, Sotheby's really interesting is that the scope of our work expanded quite a bit. When we joined, we put our technology aside and just started from basics. We asked foundational questions. How does this business work? Where, where are the bottlenecks? And how can we address those bottlenecks? Can we, because between the two of us, we have background in, in, in product as well as uh, machine learning. Uh, and we found really strong use cases of both better product as well as machine learning that can fit into the business processes and really, really, really accelerate the business in the long run. And in terms of your respective visions for the work that you're doing right now going forward, what does that look like for you at a high level? For me, like Ahmed said, like when we joined, there was a sort of um, we had uncovered all these like really interesting like uh, not just business related problems, but these are these are kind of problems that are very like interesting to the entire art market, and I, and it is so fascinating that um, sort of no one had really been uh, thinking about solving these problems in the way that uh, we had been really thinking about. Um, and so I think that, at least for me, I would like to see um, a lot of the solutions that we've, we've developed through. The approach uh, that we've taken in, in addressing uh, the key bottlenecks uh, within our business, within our industry, I'm really keen on seeing it through. And without getting into the details, as, as I mentioned, it, it touches upon uh, product innovations as well as uh, automation um, in certain key key areas. I'm just really excited to kind of see that through. And now that the both of you are surrounded by art almost 24-7 at this point, I have to end off with a question. Who is your favorite artist? Andrew? really like Dan Flavin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for me, it would be uh, Kusama, Yayoi Kusama. Well, Andrew, Ahmed, thanks so much for speaking. It was a pleasure learning about Thread Genius, and I really appreciate you sharing that experience with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 